Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. And today we've got a special guest, Phil McLemore, and I'm really excited about this show, Christopher. Phil is, I've mentioned this in prior episodes, a bit of an unknown teacher of mine, mentor, I guess. Without him knowing this, I've, I've kind of followed him and some of the things that he's taught to help me in my own practice and discipleship, and they've been tremendously beneficial to me. So I reached out to Phil, and he graciously accepted uh, the offer to join the show for an episode. And so I'm really excited about that, and uh, I want to just kind of outline how it is I came to be in touch with Phil and, and what he's taught me, and then we'll give Phil a little bit of time to give us a background and short bio so that we get a sense for who he is. So a friend of mine, Lynn, uh, introduced me kind of digitally, I guess, to to Phil, and I reached out to him. He then sent me a copy of some articles he had written for the LDS magazine, unofficial, <laughs> of course, of Sunstone. And I read those and, and loved them. And I, I wanted to learn more. So then I was invited to his Facebook group. Um, and, and since then, I've, I've adopted some of the things he teaches as a practice for myself, and specifically the meditation practice. And it's been tremendously helpful for me. And then his viewpoints on a lot of things tend to lean towards contemplation and mysticism, and that's been nice for me to have someone to uh, confirm some ideas or, or feelings that I've had. And so it's been a great uh, relationship that I've that I've started to build with Phil. So Phil, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you here. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Can you give us just a short uh, background of, of who you are, where you came from, what you've done, that sort of stuff? Well, sure. I grew up in the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, we, I was, when I was young, I grew up in Tampa, Florida. We moved to Sacramento, California in the early 60s. I went to an all-male Catholic high school there in, uh, in Carmichael, California, and then uh, when I graduated from high school in 1968, this was Vietnam era and hippies and all kinds of craziness going on. And I stopped going to church, didn't find much meaning in Catholicism. And then I just started investigating churches. I mean, you, I don't think you can name a Protestant or Christian church I haven't been to. Uh, I used to drive off the side of the road and attend the tent meetings and looking for something. When I was 19, I had a very close friend who introduced me to Mormonism, and uh, it was a wonderful group of young adults that fellowshipped me, and after having taken the discussions three times and having uh, huge battles with a couple of sets of missionaries, I was baptized at age 19. 
I was called on a mission to Brazil the next year, so I served a mission there from age 21 to 23. And then I returned to Florida and worked uh, on my bachelor's degree at the University of South Florida. And when I got there, I was designated as the uh, Latter-day Saint Student Association leader on the campus. So I led the LDS program there. And we had a full-time institute director there, and I led the class and so forth. And then um, his uh, father got sick and had to leave, so he actually had me teach his classes, his institute classes, all throughout Central Florida. So I drove all over the place, um, Orlando and Lake City and Tampa and St. Petersburg, teaching institute classes for several months. And then when he got back, um, apparently I did a good enough job that he recommended this to the area coordinator who was up in Gainesville at the University of Florida. And I didn't know this at the time, but they were looking for a graduate student to teach the evening classes there at the University of Florida. So anyway, they ended up encouraging me to go there for graduate school. I did. I taught the evening classes. That went pretty well. So I was hired full-time off the street. I didn't go through that regular seminary institute program at BYU. So I was hired directly to be the Institute of Religion Director at Auburn University. I actually founded the full-time program there. And then I spent 10 years in the church educational system as a seminary supervisor, statewide supervisor, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and then shifted over and was the institute director at the University of Georgia. At that point, we had an opportunity to to go into the military and serve as a military chaplain. So church has a very difficult time finding qualified people to serve as, as active duty military chaplains. And because I got married late at age 27, and I was hanging out at the University of Florida taking religion and philosophy classes, I just happened to take enough graduate courses to qualify. So um, we decided to shift from church education to the military. And then I served as a military chaplain representing the church for 21 years. And then I retired from that in 2004, 2005, served as a hospice chaplain for eight or nine years. And that's kind of the basic basic history there. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into the kind of the meditation history or not. Yeah, just, just briefly, if you wouldn't yeah. mind. So in 99, I uh, sustained a serious injury to my neck back and shoulder. I wasn't diagnosed properly, and I ended up in a state of of just chronic pain. Uh, Not diagnosed properly and really had no way to, you know, I didn't know what was going on with my body and how to be free of the affliction. And in the process of just trying to stabilize myself, I came across John Kabat-Zinn's book called Full Catastrophe Living, and it was... uh, the University of Massachusetts Medical School program for chronic pain and stress management based on uh, Buddhist meditation and Hatha Yoga, uh, a program developed by John Kabat-Zinn. So I started that. That was my introduction to meditation. And then I shifted to a more yogic approach to meditation with Deepak Chopra. And boy, um, Meditation was really what I needed to stabilize myself in the midst of chronic pain, which leads to all kinds of stress and so forth. 
And the deeper I got into meditation, the more I realized that, whoa, this just isn't about pain management and stress reduction. This is a spiritual path. So that's when I invested myself in studying the history and the traditions and the development of meditation practices and traditions and philosophies. Deepak Chopra was very, very helpful to me, and I trained to be one of his instructors. That didn't go too well after he left the center to do other things, so I ended up uh, doing more training with a group in Florida and went out on my own after I retired from the military and started teaching meditation. And then um, I met and developed a wonderful relationship, mentorship with a gentleman named Roy Eugene Davis, who was the at the time the last living direct guru disciple of the well-known uh, Yogananda of the Autobiography of Yogi um, book. So I studied with Roy for 13 years, the last 13 years of his life, and was initiated into that yoga tradition. So uh, I've just been fortunate to have great teachers. And the exciting thing for me was, even though I was was uh, establishing myself deeply in the yoga tradition, I suddenly awakened, I believe, to uh, a deeper understanding of Jesus, what Jesus was really about, what he was teaching, what he was mediating. And so it just gave me a whole new way of seeing and interpreting and understanding the New Testament, understanding what Jesus was offering. And so at some point, my yoga world and my Jesus world came into one, came in kind of a perfect harmony. And that's when I wrote this article called The Yoga of Christ. I mean, that was the time when this all gelled for me and became one thing. So, Phil, can I ask, going back in time just a little to your summary of, or, of your background, the the physical problems you were struggling with, with your neck and back and, and shoulders, that was it's fair to say in your middle age time, right? 40s, 50s, oh, was, somewhere in there? Yeah, I was 48, 49 years old. Yeah. I mean, it just strikes me how that corresponded with what a lot of people experience that has been outlined in Richard Rohr's book, Falling Upwards, where they have a first half of life and second half of life. And yours was triggered by physical ailments, which to me, it seems anyway, surprising somewhat that that you somewhat solve these problems with, with meditation, where... You know, most people who encounter and try meditation are doing so for the for the spiritual aspects of meditation more so than the physical. But you you were healed physically by meditation. I find that interesting. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I really admire people who go into what I call inner path practices, uh, meditation being foundational purely out of the desire for spiritual development and growth and to be one with God. I mean, I ended up being forced into this through pain and stress, so there's not much um, glory in that. But as I've met people in the different meditative traditions, I have found very few people who go deep into what I call the inner path without having been triggered or motivated by some sort of profound suffering in their lives. And it might be physical, it might be emotional, it might be family, it might be um, 
you know, it's just, there's just no telling. But I, it has been my experience that most people who have pursued inner path life and practices seriously, consistently, daily, are, are people who were originally pushed into that through some sort of intense suffering. I think Viktor Frankl hit the nail on the head when he said, to live is to suffer. Yeah. So when I come across a person and there, there are people that pop onto my Facebook page uh, that just, they're getting into this seriously just because they want to live in the love and grace of God. I, I just bow down and honor these people because <laughs> that, that wasn't me. I, I was forced. But it did correspond again to that, you know, kind of first, second half of life transition, which is fortunate for you and for the rest of us that have learned from you, that it puts you on a path spiritually, not just physically, that you continue to this day? Yeah, when I started going deep into meditation, uh, I started having spiritual insights and awakenings and understandings I had never had before. And you have to remember, my the previous 30 years of my life was devoted exclusively to religion and spirituality as a profession, Right. I mean, I was doing this 30 years full time. It was my job. And so um, to suddenly find myself experiencing a depth of, of, of spiritual dimension and spiritual reality that had been unknown to me previously was absolutely amazing and mind-blowing. And it would be helpful, I think, Phil, to differentiate between spiritual experiences and, and transformation because throughout your life, your 30-year career in religion, you had many spiritual experiences. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's, that's um, a significant distinction. Many people have spiritual experiences. Um, the issue, the point is that spiritual experiences, as glorious as they are, are not transformative. They, they come and they go. Our life is a little better for the minute or the hour or the day or the week that we have those experiences, but we're left pretty much unchanged at the core level. It, it takes a deeper level of spiritual discipline to actually bring about a, an inner transformation, a change of mind, a transformation of mind, a change of heart that leads to spiritual rebirth. Would you equate that with that mighty change of heart or becoming a new person or the, the, the baptism of fire or something like that? Oh, absolutely. It's, 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 you know, this business of being born again. I mean, Jesus didn't come just to teach spiritual principles and to perform some sort of uh, cosmic event to forgive sin um, and then leave us to, to kind of believe and try to be faithful and try to be good enough to inherit some sort of heaven or kingdom. I mean, he came to reveal the life that he lived and experienced. And that life, uh, you know, his, his whole mission was about bringing spiritual awakening and spiritual rebirth to each of us, not just to teach doctrines or, uh, you know, have classes on Sunday. It, it, it literally is intended to be a change of heart, a transformation of mind and heart so that we see with his eyes and love with his heart and we live in the conscious presence and awareness and life of God. Um, he, he came to transform us. He came to bring about a rebirth. The, the term spiritual rebirth is used so casually to mean a variety of things that are far below what Jesus was offering. So um, it, it, it's, a, 
it's a transformation that he was about. Well, this is the reason we wanted to have you on, Phil, ultimately, is to discuss Jesus. You know, this this podcast is really dedicated to contemplation, to awareness of our our natures, and to thinking deeply about those natures and what it is that we're here to to do and be and and become. Um, and when you when you contemplate the life of Jesus, there's there's really two approaches to take when you're when you're looking at the history there or or the the words of Jesus. There's kind of the the literal. And then there's the the figurative kind of mystical approach to those teachings. Can you explain a little bit for us what what the difference is and what the implications are of those two approaches? Sure. So, and I'm sure you've had programs on this in the past, people tend to go through stages of spiritual development and understanding. And for the most part, they are developmental. And so things, spiritual things... Scriptures, teachings can be understood very differently at the level of uh, spiritual development or awareness. And, you know, we read in Mark uh, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says to his disciples, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. He's really describing two levels of spiritual teaching. There's surface teaching that's normally done you know, didactically with words and concepts and thoughts and ideas and stories. And then there is this this inner realm of spiritual knowing referred to as mystery. And Jesus is clearly a mystery teacher. And for me, I mean, I've known many, many spiritual teachers and many, many what I would call mystery teachers. Jesus is unique because he's not just a teacher, he's also a mediator. So for me... Jesus not only teaches and demonstrates the depth of spiritual life, he actually mediates that once you, you understand that. And we're talking about truths, realities that can only be discerned and realized by an awakening of consciousness, an awakening of deeper consciousness and spiritual awareness. So, yeah, mysteries are about direct realization of the nature, character, presence of God, and not doctrines, not ideas, not thoughts, not speculations about God, but the kind of direct experience that actually, do you see, results in a transformation. Phil, what do you mean when you say Jesus mediates? What does that mean to you? You know, it's hard to explain, but I, I remember just spending hours and hours trying to study the deepest under, trying to get the deepest understanding of Jesus' teachings. And of course, at the same time, I'm meditating, and, and there is a grace, there is an influence, there is a power that comes to you when you open your heart and mind in Christ, following Jesus and in Christ, to experience the oneness in the Father that he experienced. This, I, I, this experience of, um, of, of that grace, of that drawing, of that, of that transforming, I experienced as a mediation. It was as if, it, it's as if Jesus is present and mediating. In other words, he's taking me where I am and he's finding ways to link me with the nature, character, and 
and presence of God. Is this not the essence of that intercessory prayer in John chapter 17? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, his disciples are experiencing that in his being and in his presence. I, I mentioned to you, I, I had this yoga guru teacher, uh, an awakened person. He was a disciple of Yogananda, and, and he, I remember him telling me one time that when he first, he became a monk in Yogananda's ashram. And so he was there full time. And when he would visit with Yogananda, he would always go with a big list of questions because he wanted answers to all these different things. And at first, Yogananda would answer the questions. And then at some point, he just felt that it was inappropriate to engage with him at that level. And so what he started doing was he would go to meet with him for one or two days at a time. And he said he would have maybe one or two questions, and then they would just sit. And he said when he was in Yogananda's presence that he always felt omnipresence, and he always felt oneness with God, oneness in God. And so he realized that the greatest spiritual development that was taking place in him was by abiding in Yogananda's presence. And so when I first started uh, studying with Roy and I would meet with him privately, I went with a big list of questions because <laughs> I wanted answers to a whole bunch of things, right? And uh, I mean, I'm a Mormon. I want to know the right way, the best way, and I want the answers to all the questions, right? So he indulged me for, I don't know, a couple years, we would do that. And then one day I asked a question and he gave me a weather report. And I'm thinking, hey, I'm asking questions about eternity and infinity and life and truth. And he's talking about the wind and the weather. It's, this is ridiculous. Hey, Jesus and he did that too, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, Nicodemus so. is meeting with him and he t starts talking about the wind and the weather. So anyway, I I just I was frustrated at first, but then I became aware of the of an impact on me just by being in his presence, you know, by being in the presence of an awakened person, of a person who lived in oneness. And then um I just stopped going with questions. And the last few years of his life, we would just sit. I'd go into his, uh, he had a little chalet with a little office and sitting room. And I'd just go in there and we'd sit and drink tea and we'd talk about the weather. <laughs> Maybe a few family things and my chickens and goats and so forth. And I would just leave there completely uplifted without getting one answer to anything. So I, what I discovered in my meditation, I, I want to be clear here. Um, Jesus is my primary mediator, mentor, guru, period, right? I was fortunate to have this fabulous yoga uh, teacher and guru, but Jesus is my, the core of my spiritual life. And so what I began to notice in my meditation was this presence, was this mediation. And, and I don't know how to say this, it sounds like a clod, but it's as if I was one of the disciples in his presence, if that makes any sense. I, I'm, I'm sensing the omnipresence of God. I'm sensing his oneness within God. And somehow that is integrating into me. It's lifting me. It's expanding me. It's transforming me. And that, that's why I call it mediation. That's beautiful, Phil. Thanks for uh, the background. I, I'm so 
fascinated by this occurrence where your interaction with a, a yogic guru helped you to realize the the inner connection with a Christian God, if you want to say it that way, in Jesus. That, that's just interesting to me that it drew you closer to Jesus. It is weird. I, I credit my my yoga um, studies and experience with awakening to the truth in Jesus. Now, you know, Christianity went into apostasy pretty early, and then Christianity became really about doctrines and beliefs and practices and, you know, really a culture of almost external religious practice and so forth. And as far as I'm concerned, the, the genuine teaching and mediation of Jesus was lost. And it's just human nature. It's just the nature of religious organizations to fall back on on uh, doctrines and external practices and so forth. And it it distracts us or it doesn't empower us to this inner life that Jesus is trying to to mediate. So once I found myself connecting to what I would call genuine spiritual life and and genuine spiritual awakening, meaning directly discerning and experiencing the the I, you know my phrase here, my the nature, character, and presence of God, all of a sudden I, I realized instantly that that is what Jesus was about and that that is completely present in Jesus in a way for me that was unparalleled anywhere else. Phil, is it fair to say, as I quoted Alan Watson in an earlier episode, as saying that the religion of Jesus became about Jesus and lost its power? Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of my favorite quotes from Alan Watts. I've got it tattooed across my chest. And um, Do you really? Well, not really. <laughs> it's, it's tattooed on the fleshly, fleshly tablets of my heart. Okay. Uh, yeah, the religion of Jesus became a religion about Jesus. And if you look at the early Christological controversies in Christianity, it was all about who was he, what's his nature, is he God, is he son of God, is he one with God, is he, you know. Is he... So they, they spent hundreds of years trying to define who and what he was and then what that means in terms of salvation. And what Jesus was really about in terms of mediating oneness within God and spiritual rebirth got completely lost. And in the Restoration, is it fair to say that it's just responding to that, it seems, right? It's, it's the same conversation. It's just a response to that where now we're going to correct all those views. And where's the religion of Jesus? Where do we find that? Well, I... Of course, I'm a little biased here. I, I believe it's found on the inner path. So it's only, you know, this is, again, we're talking about the, this thing I said, you know, Jesus says, to, to you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. So this knowledge is mystery, meaning it's not apparent. It's not obvious to the normal function of the human mind. It's not, it's not a conceptual reality. It's not a reality that you can figure out with rational thought. Rational thought is important. You know, you don't want to live in an irrational, stupid way. But there's only so far that rational thought can take you. And if you read, you know, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is so clear about the nature of spiritual knowledge, right? The natural man's incapable of discerning it. It is a spirit-to-spirit -spirit transmission. It's a spirit-to-spirit -spirit 
communication and ultimately a, a, a spirit-to-spirit inner transformation. So you, you can only find it in the, the pursuit of mystery, which is what all the scriptures encourage, right? I mean, whether it's Book of Mormon or Doctrine and Covenants or New Testament, the admonition there is always to pursue the mysteries, right? And somehow, typically in the church, we somehow think the mysteries are higher doctrines, higher conceptual things locked in the vault of the first presidency. If we just get that door open or that, you know, we could get in there and find those papers. We think the mysteries are written down on some secret paper in a secret vault. No, you can't write a mystery down. A mystery is spiritual knowing that's spiritually discerned. So the only way to know this is, I mean, what's the role of a church in a religion, really? It is to lay a foundation, in my opinion, of commitment and devotion to God, to teach principles of of mature, moral, responsible living so your life isn't chaotic and crazy and, you know, full of sin and all kinds of distracting and undermining things. You know, that's the function of religion at first. It's you know, it's Richard Rohr's first half of life, right? It's it's settling into that. And then once your life has some degree, it doesn't be perfect, some degree of of stability that a you know a church can help you with, then pursuit of mystery is an individual. No no organization can reveal mysteries. No organization can come into your home and say, Okay, here's your mystery for the week. That's an individual responsibility and an individual pursuit. I don't know how many of our listeners are are going to be at all confused by what you're describing. But there may be some new listeners who are coming into this idea of stages of faith and development for the first time. And if you are, we've done a prior show. We were honored to have Jana Johnson Spangler as a guest to talk about stages of faith development. And so you can find that in our in our library. But uh, talk about, in the context of that development of, of faith, where that individual responsibility starts to kick in a little bit more, Phil? Oh, gosh. Um, and then how do we get started with that? Yeah, well, I, I, I wrote an article called Becoming the Beloved, and in that article I shared my model of stages of spiritual development, and I used images from the New Testament. And so in my model, it starts with, with well, it actually starts with orphan. I don't think I put that in there, but uh, you move into parent-child, so, you know, lead me, guide me, walk beside me. And, you know, you're at a stage where you, you, you're you not sure what's right. You're not sure what's good. And so you have a leader, uh, whether it's a parent or a, a church leader or a mentor of some sort, who guides you based on your understanding and your mental and emotional and spiritual development. Uh, you certainly don't want to be there forever. I mean, one of Paul's main themes is to mature in Christ. It's to grow up. You know, it's not lead me, guide me, walk beside me forever. Uh, it, it's to, to develop and mature and gain abilities and skills. And so in my model, the next stage is steward. And so once you gain some understanding, if not mastery, of true principles of proper living and so forth, then that's when you begin to start being responsible for maybe a deeper understanding of them, how to apply these in your life and your life circumstances and situations and your relationships and so forth. So in the steward stage, you see, you begin assuming this personal responsibility to take what you've been taught and apply it with wisdom and to apply it intelligently in the aspects of your life. Is that, is that stage, where our concept of, of sin kind of 
creeps in is in this this steward phase where ultimately we're responsible for our actions. We're no longer, you know, beholden to this mentor's guidance or whatever. We've we've assumed responsibility for this moral way of living, but when we fail to do so, is that where sin starts to come into the picture as kind of the primary driver for most Christian disciples? Um, you know, when you're in the parent-child stage, you're, you're pretty much being told what's right and what's wrong, what's sinful and what's not sinful. And that sort of teaching isn't perfect because you're getting the view of whoever the leader or the teacher is. And, and, you know, as long as you are rule bound, right, just following the rules of others, there's not going to be much spiritual vitality within. Hopefully your life has improved a little bit by living according to uh, commandments and staying away from things that are harmful and seeking things that are healthy and good. Um, but at some point, you've got to move beyond commandments and rules to principles. And that's that's steward stage. See, at the steward stage, now, you know, gee, this might be a sin in their circumstance, but gee, this same behavior isn't a sin in that circumstance. You see, it gets a little murky. And now you've got to discern what's the right thing to do in this gray area. Well, then you start basing your decisions on principles, right? That, that's a step up in maturity and a step up in the assumption of responsibility. So, you know, you start assuming responsibility to make decisions about what's right and wrong based on principles, which have a broader application than just rules and commandments, if that makes sense. I mean, a rule-bound person is not going to go very far in this world. Yeah, I think that's the stage of uh, that's referred to as complexity. Um, oh, yeah. By Who is it? Darn it. Now I can't remember his name. Brian something. McLaren. McLaren's stages. Oh, yeah. He's got four stages, and he refers to complexity as kind of that stage where, you know, if it's just about the commandments, well, there's always some kind of exception to the rule that can screw with your head, right? And so you've got to move beyond complexity into maybe something principles-based, as you're describing. Oh, yeah. And and so that's what a steward does. You know, a steward works with principles and serves to the best of their understanding. At some point, the steward goes, uh, gee, I, I enjoy serving the master. I love serving the master. I love serving Christ. Um, but, you know, I'd really like to be more like him. And he seems to be inviting me to that. Do you see? Well, now we're assuming more responsibility. I just don't want to, to know write things and understand principles and learn how to apply them. I literally want to be like, like Jesus. And so um, there's this uh, movement toward what is going to allow me to do that. Well, to be like him, you've got to in some way feel like him and think like him and see the way he does. Do you see? And so that begins to imply some sort of transformation, which, which, gives you the capability to be able to do that. And so as you begin to develop into a discipleship stage, then you're learning the mind and the heart of Christ. You're seeking that through your prayer and your meditation and service or whatever. And if the inner transformation doesn't take place, that's not going to happen for you, right? You've got to be open to the grace, the transforming grace of God. We don't talk about enough about grace in Mormonism. Okay, it's all through the scriptures. It's all through the Book of Mormon, quite frankly. And 
we don't talk enough about grace. We talk too much about what we can do, do you see? Grace is the transformative agent. It's the transformative influence where our mind and heart is changed so that we can become true disciples. We literally begin to experience life and God and others the way Jesus did, which means we can then live the way he did, serve the way he did, bless the way he did. And as that discipleship develops, then you move into that fourth stage that I call the friend stage, do you see? You've now developed to a point of, this is going to sound blasphemous, but, but you know, a disciple, typically we think of a disciple as a little bit step down from a friend, right? What does friend mean? Friend implies equality. Well, that sounds pretty arrogant. I'm now an equal with Jesus. I'm his friend, right? That sounds so arrogant. But either you have divine nature or you don't, right? Jesus is either developing divine nature in you or he isn't. Does he have a greater divine nature than you do, or is it equal? It's equal, right? Divine nature is divine nature. And so Jesus is bringing us up to his life of wholeness and oneness with God, to the full expansion and expression of our divine nature. So we can enter a friendship stage with Christ and in Christ. There's no arrogance there. You're just simply fulfilling the measure of your creation, do you see? So... Now, the, this stage is the, the stage of friendship with Christ, in Christ. And, and then I have the next stage as beloved, where by abiding in that friendship with Christ, the day comes when suddenly you begin to experience the fullness of the oneness in the Father. Do you see? You become the beloved. Is that atonement? That's atonement. Phil, backing up to an earlier stage, is there... Do you think maybe it's part of the problem that as we go into the stage of becoming disciples, that we maybe revert to what we know from a lower stage, and we think that it's about Jesus must be where he is because he keeps all the commandments in a perfect way. Sometimes we talk like that, right, as yes. Latter-day Saints. And so it's, it's still about doing. Right. And we're missing the grace piece of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, I... You know, I served as an institute director for 10 years, and then I served as a military chaplain for 21 years. And when you're a military chaplain, a ton of LDS folks come to see you, right? So I've spent years and years and years counseling with Latter-day Saints, trying to solve problems in their lives. And and it's so funny that what Latter-day Saints often tend to do when there's a crisis in their life is they start looking for more things to do. I'm going to keep more commandments. I'm going to pay more fast offering. I'm going to go to the temple more times. I'm going to, it's always more, 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 more to try to prove themselves worthy to get the blessing that they want to solve the problem that's in their life. Do you see? What should they be doing? That more model, um, just it just doesn't work anymore. Do, do you see? Well, there's a principle, isn't there? Sometimes uh, more isn't better. Sometimes it's just more. It's just, <laughs> it is more. It sounds like Mary and Martha to me. It is Mary and Martha. And it's so weird because Martha's doing a good thing. I mean, you know, she's mad at Mary because Mary just seems to be sitting there doing nothing. Well, Mary's not doing nothing. Mary is learning how to discern the omnipresence of God in Jesus and the oneness 
the oneness that Jesus is experiencing in his life in God. See, she's sitting in Jesus' presence the way Roy did with Yogananda and the way I did with him and the way I do now with Christ himself. Do you see what I'm saying? So is she doing nothing? No, she's doing the most important quote unquote work, right? The inner work. Uh, the inner work. It's not really work. It's more about discerning, perceiving, discerning, and receiving. Um, well, if you don't know how to receive, receiving is pretty hard spiritual work. Uh, but to the Marthas, you know, and Marthas are fabulous people, right? If we didn't have Marthas, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be getting things done. But at, at some point, there's got to be that balance between Mary and Martha. But what did Jesus say about Mary and Martha, right? He says to Martha, Martha, you're too anxious about too many things, right? You're trying to do too much your own, on your own. Uh, Mary has chosen what? That the thing that is needful. You see, the absolute better part of the needful part is the inner work. Why? Because that's what brings the, the transformative grace of God into your life. That's what brings about spiritual awakening. That's what brings about spiritual rebirth. And then this other stuff, you know, then sins and bad tendencies, that, that stuff starts to fade away. It doesn't have the power that it did anymore, right? I mean, could Jesus be tempted with gross sin and evil? I mean, it's absurd, right? It, it, it was, it's, it's disagreeable. It's disgusting to him. It should be to us. And it is to us when our heart is changed, you see, when our heart and mind becomes pure. There, there's no attraction to that sort of thing. So I, I know people in their 80s, they'll come to talk with me. They've been fighting sin their entire lives. I'm working at it. I'm doing more. I'm praying more. I'm going to the temple more. I'm, fighting. I'm still impatient. I'm still selfish. I'm working at it. I'm fighting. Well, you've been doing that for 80 years, my friend. It's not, you know, I, I'm grateful for the effort. Wow, it's impressive. It's not working. It's not working. Do you see? And a lot of people are feeling this way. They're feel, they feel like they're doing all the things and it's not working. Yeah, we and so there's something that they're missing and that's what we're that's what we're talking about here, right? And it's not about doing. I'm reminded of the song uh I am a child of God. Didn't it used to say teach me all the things I must know and yes. now it says do. Yes. When are we going to get to be? Right. Right. Yeah, I, I we need to make that progression. Um one of the um Oh gosh, I didn't get the right word here. One of the issues or one of the problems I have with typical Mormon spirituality is we work really hard to perfect the natural man. Uh, we define the natural man too narrowly within Mormonism. We just see it as the dark side of the self. But it's really the separate sense of self apart from God. I call that the illusion that we can be separate from God. Well, it is. It is an illusion. And course awakening is the overcoming of that illusion but um, we we try to perfect the natural man in galatians 6 paul's very clear you don't perfect the natural man you crucify the natural man right the natural man i mean baptism is a symbol of that we take the old man the natural man and we bury him so there's a new life in christ you see so we spend all this time and energy trying to make ourselves better and better and better now we need to try to be better and better. I'm not saying don't try to be better. But that only goes so far, do you see? It doesn't result in the awakening and rebirth that I've been talking about. And, and the essence of that, again, comes from inner path practice and the receiving of the grace in God. How did Jesus become 
the Son of God. See, how did Jesus become the Christ? Section, you know, the Doctrine and Covenants tells us. He, he received grace for grace and continued from grace to grace. I mean, how does the Book of Mormon end? What is Moroni telling us at the end? It, it's a message of grace, right? To be perfected in the grace of God. That's his final message. So, Is it fair to say, Phil, that just getting... Just doing the burial part, right? Just getting dunked in water isn't it either. Because I think sometimes we, we make the symbol the referent and we miss yes. that there's that there's something this is pointing to and that we I was about to say we have to do that thing. It's not really about doing, right? But right. there's a transformation that, that's supposed to take place that, that symbol's just really just pointing to. Right. So rituals, ordinances, are symbols of inner spiritual processes. Okay? They indicate it. They are invitations to come into that, not just a baptism or an endowment or whatever. They're symbols of inner spiritual processes and changes that move us into oneness with the Father in Christ. So the focus has got to be on what what does this ordinance mean at its deepest level? See, we get stuck at the literal surface level, what you know, what you might call the parable level, and we're missing the mystery. You know, the deep meaning and the deep mystery of the ordinance and certainly the deep mystery and meaning of baptism is literally the death of the false, natural man, ego mind, ego sense of self, mind made sense of self, whatever spiritual lingo you want to use. And the the um, the awakening, the rebirth, the living in the, the light and the life the presence and the nature of God himself. So it's, it's the new life. It's the new creation. And in, in an earlier episode, Phil, we referred to this as a resurrection yes. and, and talked about it as something that can happen before we die. Absolutely. So um, I don't know if Riley read it, but the, the post on my Interpath Facebook page this morning was this concept. And it, I mentioned I, it, it triggered me because of a, of a scripture that Riley quoted from the Gospel of Philip which clearly says, if you're not resurrected before you die, you're not going to be resurrected after you die. <laughs> and what dawned on me as I was reflecting on that is, if, if you look at the qualities of a resurrected being that Jesus manifested after his technical death and resurrection, right? Um, and you look back at his life before that death and resurrection, he's manifesting the same qualities. So he's obviously functioning beyond space and time. You know, he passes through walls to meet with his disciples. He's instantaneous here and then there, right? He's not limited by space and time. But then you suddenly realize in the gospel, wait a minute, he's walking on water. There's a crowd that's getting ready to stone him. He just walks into the midst of them and disappears. He's gone. They can't find him. And what dawned on me is Jesus was, was already living resurrected life before the technical resurrection, if that makes sense. Before he died. Yeah. There's a great book on this topic by an LDS philosopher named Adam Miller that we've, we've referenced in the past. And I love this book. It's short, maybe 100 pages, but a great primer for those who want to learn about this concept of early resurrection. It's called An Early Resurrection by Adam Miller. I highly recommend that one. Um, Phil, I wanted to go back to this idea of of being versus doing and sin versus atonement, uh, not even necessarily versus, but just where these concepts come from. It seems to me 
that the whole idea of doing, doing more, doing better, has more of a community interest. And the reason why this isn't internally, individually transformative is because it has less to do with being and more about just doing the things, checking the boxes. And that all has importance for the community. It's important that we all are able to relate to each other in a way that's trustworthy. We're not going to steal from each other. We're not going to covet each other's spouses and so forth. So that those are all really important community interests. But when it comes to transformation, it's more about that awakening that you refer to. Yeah. So, so look, it is important to do the right thing, right? And to do the right things for the right reason. Um, but we, t- we tend to do the, the right things for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they're to our benefit. Sometimes they're not necessarily to our benefit, but they at least, you know, if you care about your image as a good person, or if you care about your image as a spiritual person, then you'll try to do the right things to maintain that image. But it's still an image and not substance. When it's all said and done, so you do the right thing, again, to stabilize your life, to kind of point you in the right direction. But it's as long as the doing is forced, as long as it's sacrifice, as long as it's effort, you see, as long as it's hard and it's tedious, you, you, sooner or later, you're just going to wear out and get tired. Uh, and it, again, what we're trying to do is perfect the natural man, you see. We're trying to make the natural man good enough to get into the kingdom. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? I mean, I was a hospice chaplain for eight, nine years in Utah. I, I was at the deathbed of hundreds and hundreds of Latter-day Saints. And I can't tell you how many would say to me, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I was good enough. I don't know if I did enough, paid enough, served enough. I mean, there's all this anxiety. Do you see? Um, you should never die with anxiety. I mean, what, what, what does Paul say? You know, we should approach the last day with confidence, with boldness, right? Well, how could I approach the, 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 my death? How could I approach going into the presence of God with boldness and confidence if I haven't already been there in some way? Do you see what I'm saying? Been there, done that. I know where I'm headed. I know who God is. I wouldn't know what God's about. I know what he's doing with me and for me, and I know what to expect there. Do you see? So you go with confidence and boldness, not worry and fear. But that comes out of a transformation of being. We want our doing in the end. We want our doing to reflect a, a deeper inner state of being, Christ-like being. Well, now doing's natural. Do, do you see? Jesus didn't work hard to be honest and kind and compassionate. It, it was his natural. It, it was a natural flow from him because he lived in oneness with God. That, that transformation had taken place. So, you know, we get all hung up on sin, but. You know, sin is the battle of the natural man. When you've had an inner transformation and you're living in and out of the being and nature of God, you just naturally start to do those things that are consistent with his character, his love, his grace. And it's no effort whatsoever. It's just your natural way of living. Your doing becomes a natural extension of your being. Yeah, my Baptist preacher, ex-neighbor and friend had it right when he said, you know, he, he was going into this, it's the usual conversation between Baptists and Mormons about grace and works. And, and he says, look, works, good works naturally come out of the transformation that grace causes. They should. And if it's done for any other reason, I mean, I want people to do good things for any reason. <laughs> That's the community better, interest, they, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want people doing bad things for selfish reasons, but in the end, you want to be doing the, the right things for the right reason, and then you want to be doing the right things 
really not even contrived or it's just your natural life in Christ which you know Paul used that expression life in Christ I forget like 150 times throughout his writings I mean it's clearly one of his main themes right life in Christ not the life of Christ life in Christ yeah, who's big on life in Christ that's something he talks about a lot do we mistake then is there a contradiction is there a tension between the Aristotelian idea that we can habituate habituate ourselves into being good by doing good and the idea that that grace transforms us and that good actions come out of that or can can we synthesize these ideas in some way um or or what's the what's your way of understanding it well pretty much as i've explained it i mean there are some wonderful people who take joy in just doing the right thing they delight loving, caring, being honest. I hate to say it, but for most of us, it's, it's a commitment and effort. Well, and doesn't it, doesn't it work? And I find that the Aristotelian way works. So if, it, if I'm not really a bed maker and I just make my, and this, and this is from my own personal experience, and, and my wife wants the bed made and I make the bed over and over and over, it just becomes second sure. nature. And Aristotle was the one who coined that term. It just becomes second nature. It's now who I am. So there was a transformation that took place in, in, that, in that habituation process. Sure. So, so, But it is different when I do it now. It uh, really is. Yeah. Of course, the development of good habits is part of spiritual practice. And the, the, the cool thing about habits is you, you consciously, hopefully, establish your... I mean, unconscious habits cause problems because we'd be being driven by the lower nature but if you're consciously choosing to habituate yourself to a noble activity whether it's making the bed or whatever the noble behavior is uh, and that becomes uh, a habit that means you're doing it automatically without having to think about it which frees up your attention and your awareness to be conscious about other things so that can be transformative um, I still think it's at, uh, at more of a surface level. You, you know what I'm saying? We're, we're kind of yeah. using the function of the mind to do that in a positive way. Um, in the end, I'm recommending a, 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 a transformation of nature such that there's a, just a natural tendency to do that. I, I guess what I would say to this, Phil, is it seems to me there doesn't necessarily need to be a sequential or chronological progression from works to to nature or to being like we don't have to do in order to become we can we can be a, we can be transformed and then from that transformation flows the actions or works of a transformed person and it seems to me at least in reading the history of Jesus who was teaching in the temple at age 12 and had people awestruck with his wisdom that he had undergone the transformation early and the works flowed from that. And so it doesn't seem to me there has to be this necessary sequential progression from works to being. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you see this manifest in different people. Uh, my wife fell out of heaven. I'm not exaggerating. She just has always had a pure heart and a pure mind and she's just always naturally done the right thing 
and never been challenged, never been challenged with being selfish or dishonest. And, and uh, you know, where these people come from, I, I'm not quite sure. My experience in ministry is most people are struggling much of the time to be right and to do right. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, what causes one person to open themselves to that deeper life and that deeper level of being out of which kind of good works naturally flow. It's, I, I just, I haven't found any way of, of uh, assessing that scientifically, so to speak. It just seems to unfold in certain people. But you don't want to feel like, um, like sometimes I'll have people I, I teach meditation to, and well, how long have you been meditating? You know, well, to, well how, many year, how many months or years is it going to take me? Well, guess what? Um, maybe it'll take you four months to experience what took me five years. You, you know what I'm saying? Maybe you're just more open and more receptive to the state of being. Um, there's no concrete formula here. Do you see a lot of it has to do with a person's devotion and openness. And It seems like we're talking about quality, not quantity. And, and it's not surprising that in our times, you know, as, uh, Hanegenon pointed out the it's quantity that reigns in our minds. It reigns supreme, and and quality has been thrown out the window. And so, what you're ta- referring to here, I think, is quality, and it really depends on quality, right? Oh, absolutely. And of course, in this case, divine quality, right? We want the qualities and characteristics of God, the qualities and characteristics that literally are already present in our soul, but we're not realizing. You know, we're not experiencing. I, I, I often tell the story, my, one of my biggest problems was patience. And I, I struggled with patience for decades. And my, you know, my wife, when our children were little, my wife would say to me, Phil, these are children. <laughs> you have to be patient. You know? And I'd say, I know, I know, I'm going to work at it. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to pay more. I'm going to go to the temple more. I'm going to do, you know what I'm saying? I, there was always more, more, more to do so I could be blessed with patience. It was, it was as if patience was up there in heaven and God's holding it in his right hand and he's waiting for me to do enough to be faithful enough to get the blessing of patience. And he's going to throw it down on top of me, you know, when I prove that. Well, you know, for 30 years, I was on the patience do program. and convinced that sooner or later that patience was coming down. Well, I had a little bit of improvement, a little bit, but not substantive improvement. And so then, you know, I start meditating because of, of uh, pain and stress and so forth. And after three years of meditation, my wife says to me one day, I just noticed something. I said, what is that? She says, you're patient. <laughs> I said, what? That's, I don't think that's possible. She says, yeah, you're patient. And she had a whole list of positive qualities that were the inverse of the negative qualities she'd been working on me with for 30 years, you know, and it was like, we just kind of sat there awestruck and it was like, well, where did this come from? Do do you see? Well, patience wasn't up there in heaven in the right hand of God waiting to be thrown down after I proved myself worthy. Patience was always a quality of my divine nature. It was always within me. Does that make sense? But you awakened to it after having trusted the process of years of meditation. And so some might say, well, that's a doing thing. Well, yeah. I mean, if I hadn't done the meditation practice, that unfolding, you know, that weakening of natural man tendencies, which is what causes impatience, right, would have stayed in place. So 
you know, inner work, this inner kind of inner meditative work that we're talking about does two things. It weakens the tendencies of the natural man. At the same time, it nourishes and helps the divine nature that's inherent within our true nature to unfold. So if I had done the work of meditation, that certainly wouldn't have unfolded. However, meditation is not a doing work, do you see? It's a, it's a feminine practice of surrendering, opening, receiving. You see, if you want to call that work, I guess you could call it work. But Well, it's not doing, it's being. That's interesting you bring it up that way. I I was sitting on my couch an hour ago doing my daily meditation, and it was the most effortless thing in the world. <laughs> I fell asleep right. for 10 minutes at the end of it. And then I came back to and, you know, hit my singing bowl and ended my meditation. But it, it is ironic that, that it's referred to as work because it's really, it, it's effortless. Right. Well, it's work for us to be because we we're just not used to being, so we have to we have to work at being. But really, the goal is just to be. Yeah. When I teach people meditation, there's steps and structures and disciplines, right? I mean, if you don't have a near daily practice, it's not going to unfold very well because the 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 way we live and the influences in our day to day lives reinforce the natural man. They reinforce the false sense of self. That's, and they are that's happening all the time. That is daily. It is a miracle that 20 or 30 minutes of daily meditation can overcome the other 23 and a half hours of natural man influence and and worldly influence. It's a miracle that it can do that, right? But people think somehow it's arduous to spend 20 or 30 minutes a day doing this inner being work. Do you you see? It's so powerful that it can be transformative in just 20 minutes a day. But if you're not doing it consistently and regularly, you're, you're not, you're surrendering yourself to the influences that have already had you captive for so many decades. So there is some discipline and work involved at first, but the discipline is, I'm going to do it at this time every day. And this is my practice. And, and, you know, this is my procedure. Do you see? But once you get into meditation, your effort stops your personal effort stops because again, it's this, it's the natural man at some level. It's still the natural man wanting to be enlightened, wanting to be awakened, wanting to be reborn and natural man effort can't make that happen. So at some point you've got to transition to again, described for Jesus. Do you see learning how to receive grace for grace and then learning how to continue from grace to grace. And that's not a doing thing. Do you see? I mean, you could define receptive, receiving as doing, but it's not really doing. It's it's connecting with being, opening, surrendering, receiving, being transformed. Doing is active. Receiving is passive. Phil, something that's emerged for me from this discussion is something you just brought up again, is, is this idea of miracle or the miraculous and how what becomes possible when we abide outside of space and time limitations in this transformed life, the world is opened up to you and, and the limitations disappear. Talk a little bit about miracles and, and the way that you understand miracles. There's the miracles that are chronicled of Jesus. There could be some you know, license taken by the chroniclers of those experiences, but nevertheless, they're there. And how would you understand the concept of miracles? I know it's obvious to you if you think about it for a second. Life itself is a miracle. 
we don't, we take it for granted, but my wife and I were talking about this the other night. I mean, our bodies are composed of these, you know, carbon and nitrogen and hydrogen and it, it you know, we're the table of chemicals <laughs> dancing around. Well, what in the world would allow, you know, calcium and carbon and nitrogen and hydrogen to suddenly, uh, you know, compose a sonata or to paint a masterpiece or to write a book or to sing or to, you know, we, we do, I mean, just our lives are miraculous in and of themselves, but somehow we, I mean, part of awakening is suddenly looking at the, the day-to-day things in life with new eyes and seeing that literally everything you do is a miracle, right? Everything that grows is a miracle. Every creature that exists is a miracle. Uh, we don't see it that way. But then there's the dimension of, of living the divine life within that is even more miraculous. Um, the miracles of consciousness, of existence, of being, you know, those are the primary qualities. And, and when, a, when you begin to live from the foundation of consciousness, of existence, of being, of divine nature, then those things begin to manifest in your physical life. Uh, and then we start to call those things miracles, right? Well, so two sayings of Jesus come to mind. Number one, seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? The deeper reality. And then all these things will be added unto you, right? So there's a life of the miraculous that just come, becomes manifest in our lives as we seek first the kingdom, meaning the, the genuine inner life of God. And then there's that great uh, passage on prayer and meditation in Matthew 6, 6, you know, go into your closet, close the door to what? The ordinary way of seeing and doing things. Pray to your father, pray a wonderful Aramaic, you know, that word in Aramaic literally means to, to set a trap in the sense of you go into a forest and you clear out a sacred space where there's silence and quiet and you wait and watch in present moment awareness for the prey to arrive, right? I mean, that's the literal meaning of the Aramaic word for prayer. It's really describing meditation. You clear out a sacred space. The trap is your devotion. You open yourself to receive. You wait for the veil to part, right? It says your father is in secret. He's in hiding. Well, why is he hiding? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's not that he is hiding. He's hidden, do you see, from ordinary perception. He's hidden from the way the natural man sees things. Well, now I've gone into the closet deep within. I've closed the door to ordinary awareness and the ordinary human way of doing things. I'm now praying, creating the sacred space and opening my mind and heart to receive or to have the presence and nature and character of God unveiled to me, right? And when that happens, what does it say? In the next verse, it says um, that that you know, the God you're experiencing in secret will reward you openly. Do you see? Well, that openness is some of the, you know, you're talking about miracles in our lives. Well, um, um, some extraordinary, amazing things can happen that we would call miraculous, do you see, coming out of that adding to or coming out of that being rewarded openly. It's just because if you're living authentic, authentically in Christ, in oneness with the Father, that has to be manifest in some way in your day-to-day -day temporal life. Do you see? 
You talked about the example of Jesus passing through the crowd that was trying to lay their hands on him and, you know, maybe capture him and put him in prison or whatever. And it, it brought to mind, I just read Deepak Chopra's uh, historical fiction uh, dramatization of the Buddha. It's just called Buddha. Great book. Um, and I know it's not, you know, it's it's based on historical events, but it's, you know, he's taken some license to make it kind of a, a nice story. But there's, par- there's a part in that book where Buddha is walking in the midst of a battle, two competing armies, and he walks right through it with no harm being done to him. At one point, some soldiers challenge him and say, get out of here or we're going to kill you. He walks up to them and says, you know, essentially, you can't harm me. And, and they come to this realization that he can't be harmed. Not necessarily physically, but because he's transcended the the connection to the physical. And I almost see this example of Jesus passing through the crowd in the same way that this the, the crowd just knew they couldn't harm him. Not because oh, I, uh, they were restricted from, you know, physical harm, but just they couldn't harm him. Yeah, no, that's a good insight. That's a great insight, actually. We... we um Maybe another day we can do this, but there's a whole discussion to be had on miracles, on healings, on these sorts of external manifestations that I think we misunderstand at a literal level, and we misunderstand the the deeper meaning of that. You know, maybe that'd be a good topic someday. Uh, but yeah, that that's a fabulous insight, quite frankly. Well, Phil, we're... We're about there on time. We try to hold ourselves to one-hour shows, and we've gone over just because we're, I think we're all fascinated by this discussion. And I'd like to continue it for many episodes. And I, I don't want to commit you to anything, but we're definitely going to be asking you to come back on the show. As a closing thought, Phil, you shared something in our pre-show discussion a few days ago that absolutely struck me to my core. And the reason why it did is because it came from my favorite scripture, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, and it essentially says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Is that essentially it? Yeah, it ends with, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So um, I have to tell you this. This was the passage I was reading as a hospice chaplain to a dying man. And as I was reading this passage, that was when I had this satori, this enlightenment take place, where I suddenly saw the teachings and the mission and the message and the mediation of Jesus, at least to my ability to comprehend in its fullness in a different way than I had ever seen before. I mean, this is what I was reading when that happened. So come come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Well, that's the human condition. No matter how much money you have, no matter how great your life is, sooner or later, the human experience is an experience of, of suffering, of loss. Um, you know, when you age, you're losing. You lose physical capability, mental capability. You lose sometimes jobs. You lose family members. It's, it's just the nature of, of human life. So, you know, marriages are notoriously difficult at times. So most human beings are dealing with heavy, heavy burdens of one sort or another. He's promising rest, whatever that is. We haven't defined it yet. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And again, you will find rest unto your souls. When I was reading this, I, of course, I'd been studying yoga for some years, and I suddenly realized, whoa, wait a minute. That word yoke is a cognate of the Sanskrit, of the Sanskrit word yug, which means yoga. So when I wrote my article, The Yoga of Christ, I, you know, I kind of teased at the beginning of the article that that verse could be translated, practice my yoga, right? Yoga meaning a, a system of spiritual practice that leads you into oneness with God. So take my yoke upon you. In other words, join yourself with me and to me really in spiritual equality, right? Equally yoked. Equally yoked. He's trying to bring us into spiritual equality with the Father, in oneness with the Father. Uh, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Well, we're going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When is, when is a yoke easy and a burden light, do you see? Somehow we like to teach that in the difficulties of life, Jesus is going to come in and he's going to give us just enough strength. He's going to get in there with us to help lift these burdens and move along and trudge along within the, the burdens of our life. I don't think that's the primary meaning here or the deepest meaning. The deepest meaning here is he yokes us with the presence and nature of God, which reveals to us our own divine nature. And when a person is restored to their own divine nature, what do they experience? Ah, rest, do you see? The burdens come when we live life as natural men, do you see, as ego minds, as the limited false sense of self. That's where suffering and burden comes from. Even in a, in a technically difficult mortal life, if we are yoked with Christ, grounded in our divine nature, in living out of the nature, presence, love, and grace of God, no matter what's happening to us in the external world, no matter how burdensome it might be to any other person, we're experiencing rest because we're established in our soul nature, in our divine nature. Does that make sense? This is the core of contemplation. Absolutely, we've talked about this many times. This is what this is what we're after, and and there's just no substitute for it. And there's no, and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's that peace that surpasseth all understanding that can only be found in Christ. Absolutely, yeah. He's yoking us with that. He's bringing us into union, presence and nature of God, our own divine nature, and then we. We give a sigh of relief, do you see? Ah, uh, right. Uh, and guess what? I still got bills to pay tomorrow, and I still got goats to feed. And, uh, you know, I was telling you, we just had a windstorm, and some siding blew off my house, and now I got to figure out how to fix that. <laughs> but do you, you see? Well, be careful up there, Phil. I have to. It's, it doesn't mean I can't approach it in rest, right, and in peace and in divine purpose and now, Phil, can you levitate to deal with that problem, or do you use a ladder? Um, I'm still using the ladder. The last time I levitated, I was about five feet up, and I lost my faith and fell, so my knee hurts a little bit. So I'm still going for the ladder. It's like Peter on the water, you know. <laughs> hey, it's working. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I need a little more levitation practice. Thanks so much for being with us, Phil. Oh, you guys are fabulous. I, I really enjoyed this. The pleasure has been ours, and we really look forward to the next uh, time that we can 
have you join the program. We'll we'll have a very interesting topic to discuss, I'm sure. And we've appreciated your insights and your history and your example, and we're, we're really looking forward to that at, at some future point. So thanks again for being with us, Phil. Is there anything, Phil, that you'd like to say in closing? And, and by the way, is that Facebook group that Riley mentioned public? It's a private page. If you, um, it's it's called Inner Path. Uh, it's not typically light duty teaching. So uh, and we've had people on there for a lot of years, but it's it's typically, um, uh, yeah. Anybody interested in inner life, uh, inner path, meditation, you can join. It's it's uh, just search Inner Path, request to join. There's a few questions you answer, and. You know, I'll just approve that and you can join in the conversation. Thanks, Phil. Anything else to add? Not for me. It's been great having you with us, Phil. Thank you. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone.